welcome again to Grace Church of Philly. Special welcome to those who are watching from different places uh, around the world and here in the U.S. We pray that wherever you are, God would speak to your heart and show you how good and how gracious Jesus Christ is. Take your Bible or look in your bulletin with me this morning. We'll be looking at John chapter 2. This morning I begin a series on the Gospel of John. I will not be going through the whole Gospel, but I will be looking at seven signs that John chose from the life of Christ. My hope in this series is the same that John the Apostle had, and that is throughout this series you will see the glory of Jesus Christ, and if you don't believe in him, you will believe in him, and if you do believe in him, you will believe even more strongly in him, and I hope that you will, over the next seven weeks, invite your friends and your family to come and to see and to hear and maybe be persuaded that Jesus Christ is the Lord. He is the Messiah. Earlier in the Gospel of John, in the first chapter, what we call the prologue, John said that he and the other disciples saw the glory of Christ. We read that. Theodore read that this morning. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John says we saw his glory, and he is going to show us some of those miracles that Jesus did that revealed his glory. And then as Gary said in his welcome this morning, John closes his uh, his gospel with these words. Now, many other signs did Jesus which are not written in this book, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. When John talks about the signs, many other signs truly did Jesus. He's particular in the word that he chooses. You know, all of the other gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when they talk about the miracles of Jesus Christ, they choose a particular word. We actually get our word dynamite from it. It means power. But they choose a particular Greek word that focuses on the mighty works that Jesus did. But John, even though he could have used that word rightfully to describe those same mighty works, John doesn't use that word to describe the miracles he recorded. He uses the word that's translated sign. Because John's interest isn't that you be captured simply by the powerful work that Jesus does. Certainly see that. But John's purpose is that these mighty works are not an end in themselves. These mighty works are pointers. 
They are pointing you to who Jesus Christ really is. As one commentator says, John's insight is that Jesus' miracles are not primarily a display of his power, but a demonstration of his messianic identity. So it's not just, you know, let me see the power. No, for John is, let me see who Jesus Christ really is. And I think it's a good point that John is making because we live in a world where you know, people want to see mighty works of power. You know, they love to see miracles. They pray for miracles. They want miracles. But John wants you to see Jesus, not just get, get caught up in these miracles. So the main purposes of John's gospel are really twofold. To reveal the glory of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and to bring people to faith in Jesus Christ. And it's interesting that Jesus often in his uh, addressing the crowds would rebuke, especially the re religious leaders, he would rebuke them because they wanted a sign. You know, they kept saying, show us a mighty work, show us a mighty work, and Jesus would say, I'm not showing you anything because you don't have eyes to see anyway, and you don't have hearts to believe. But John is giving us signs. And he says, these signs are here. Look at them. That you might see that Jesus is the Messiah. And that in believing in him, you might have life through his name. I pray that God will point us to the glory of Jesus Christ. This morning, we're looking at the first miracle of Jesus, turning water into wine. It's interesting that he chooses this miracle, but he is the creator. He began the new creation. All things were made by him. But he's also the creator of the new creation. He can take water and make anything he wants out of it. He makes wine out of it. Listen to our text this morning. John chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, 
than the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. This particular incident is part of what is called the Cana cycle. Cana is in the northern part of Galilee. And chapters 2 through 4 begin and end with a miraculous work in this small village of Cana in the northern part of Galilee. He takes between 120 to 180 gallons of water and turns it into wine. Now, that's a lot of wine. I mean, if, if you poured it into six-ounce glasses, it would be about 4,000 glasses of wine. If you had 200 people at the wedding, then you each had about 20 glasses of wine, which is way too much. One or two is fine. 20, nobody walked home that night. But his point, we'll see, was not to provide enough people, to get, enough wine to get everybody drunk. His point, we will see, is to show that he can create more than enough, more than what we need, more joy, more cleansing, more forgiveness. We know that wine in the Bible is often associated with celebration, with joy. The Old Testament Jews were told to bring their wine and drink it before the Lord and rejoice before the Lord. The prophet Isaiah spoke of a day in Isaiah 25 when the Messiah would come and he would make a great feast for his people and he would serve them. And Isaiah is specific. He would serve them very fine aged wine. Listen to Isaiah's words out of Isaiah 25, beginning in verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. So Isaiah spoke of a day when the Messiah would bring great joy. He would give his people aged wine, fine wine. They would celebrate but it's also good to keep in mind that wine is not only a symbol 
of great joy and celebration, which is likely one of the main emphases here. But John will later tell us in his last book, Revelation, that that wine is a symbol of the wrath of God. In John's mind, you either, you know, drink the, the wine of God's blessing and joy by coming to faith in Jesus Christ, or you drink the wine which is the cup of his wrath. Listen to him in Revelation chapter 14 and verse 9. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. So you can have this wine that causes you to celebrate if you come to Christ in faith, or you drink the cup of God's wrath that will bring torment forever and ever. Jeremiah, the Old Testament prophet, also spoke of this cup of, of God's wrath, this wine that you drink where you experience the wrath of God. So wine is both a symbol of the joy that the Messiah brings as well as the, the wrath that the Messiah brings on those who reject him. But the context, our context, is a context of celebration. Jesus is announcing his kingdom. He is bringing in his kingdom, bringing it, bringing it in as one who is the creator of joy. And in this act of creating 188 gallons of the best wine, we see the glory of Jesus Christ. A couple of things we can see in our text this morning. We see the glory of his authority and his power over nature. His authority and power to create the means of joy, an abundant means of joy. As a storyteller, as John tells the story of what happened, it's interesting that he does not give anyone a name in the story except Jesus. We know that at this time, early in Jesus' ministry, his disciples would only have been Peter, James, John, Andrew, and Nathaniel, and they are with him. But he doesn't name them. He gives them no name. He doesn't even name himself in the entire gospel he writes. He is often referred to simply as the one whom Jesus loved. Jesus' mother is there, but she's not identified by name. The bride and bridegroom, the wedding is all about them. They have no name. The master of the ceremonies, nameless. The servants, nameless. Because the story is not about 
this wedding. As much curiosity as we may have about who were this man and woman and where did it take place and who were the guests and why did they run out of wine? You know, why did they not prepare for that? You may have a hundred questions about it. But John's point is to bring our attention to the only one that has a name in our story, Jesus Christ. Because you can live life, we all do, we can live life with many unanswered questions. But there's one question you cannot afford to not answer. And that is, who is Jesus Christ? Now, the mother of Jesus, as John calls her, knew who Jesus Christ was. She knew the miraculous conception that she experienced by the Holy Spirit. She knew that she once carried in her womb the one who is called the Holy One of God, Emmanuel, God with us. She knew that this Jesus, this child of hers, had come to save his people from their sins. And she has waited 30 years for Jesus to come out and say, I am the Messiah. This is who I am. I am God in flesh. And now she sees an opportunity. The wedding's not over. The wine is gone. Listen again to her words or our text. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. So in Mary's mind, this is prime time for Jesus Christ to display his power and glory, to demonstrate to a great crowd of people that he is God in flesh. He is the Messiah. But Jesus is not ready. He's ready to show his disciples a glimpse of his glory, to strengthen his faith, their faith, but he's not ready yet to become public for everyone to begin to look to him as the Messiah. He doesn't want that yet, and so he performs the miracle very discreetly. He does it in such a way to keep attention largely away from himself. Even the master of the ceremony who, who tastes the wine is unaware of where this best wine has come from. And Mary, even though it seems like she is uh, abruptly denied, woman, what does this have to do with me? Her faith in Christ is undiminished. She simply turns to the servants. She knows that this son of hers has power and authority to do anything. 
And she simply says, whatever he says, do it. And by the way, that's good advice. Not just for those servants. It's good advice for all of us who want to glimpse his glory, who want to see and experience his authority and power. And in those moments between the servants filling to the brim these uh, water jugs and, and then drawing that water out for the master of the wedding to taste, Somewhere in there, and John isn't even interested in telling us how it happened because that's not his point to get caught up in the specifics of the miracle. But somewhere in there, in those moments, Jesus turned 180 gallons of water into wine. And I suspect, our text doesn't tell us, but I suspect he did it just like he did in the beginning. He said, let there be light. And there was light. Water turn into wine. And water becomes wine. This is our creator. As Theodore read this morning, all things were made by him. And he keeps creating. Sometimes in the initial creation, just out of nothing. He speaks, and out of nothing, the universe comes into being. But other times, as in the creation story, he takes what he has already made, and he forms it into something else. That's his creative act here. We see the glory of our creator God. But we see his glory in another way. John mentions that there were six water jars used for the Jewish rites of purification. Now, I don't think he's just filling in space in his story, but he's telling us uh, something about these jars because it's significant that Jesus uses them as the basis for his miracle. And we do know, by the way, from archaeology that these water jars were used commonly in first century Palestine for rituals of purification. We even have excavations in the area of Cana of Galilee where they have found these water jars, same ones that Jesus used. Who knows? But somebody probably thinks they are and is making money off of it. But the point is this was a common thing. People went through outward rituals for spiritual cleansing. I remember going to India a few years ago, more than a few years ago. And we traveled to the north of in India to the Sikh area of India. You know the Sikhs, they normally have the big turbans on their head and, and the male Sikhs, you know, I don't know if they can do it here, but the male Sikhs always have a a really nice knife in their belt with a carved blade. and uh, So I, we went up to Amritsar, which is the home of the Golden Temple, this gorgeous piece of architecture. 
And uh, we went to visit, and in order to get in to visit, you had to take your shoes off. And there were just hundreds and hundreds, piles of shoes. You wondered if you would ever find your shoes again. But we took our shoes off, and inside there are thousands of people and this huge pool of water. And some are bathing in it. Others are just putting their feet in it. And so I went over. And I put my feet in that water. And you know what happened? Nothing. My feet got wet, cool maybe, but nothing happened. My soul, apart from the blood of Christ, was still just as filthy and needy. John tells us that these six jars for the ritual of purification are empty jars. And he wants us to know that. Perhaps he's reminding us and reminding his readers that Judaism of the first century, but not just Judaism, all religions apart from Jesus Christ are barren and empty. Those empty jars are a great picture of being apart from Christ. And the truth is, even if they had been filled with water, even after Jesus commanded them to be filled with water, there was still no power in that water itself to bring about any type of spiritual cleansing. You know, religious activity, like putting your feet in the water, as I did, may make you feel good. And it may even make others think better of you. Oh, you went to church. But it doesn't change you, and it cannot cleanse you. No water can cleanse the soul only the blood of Christ can cleanse the soul. So Jesus has the servants fill the jars with water. But it's not the water of empty religion. It's water that will be transformed. That water is powerless until it is transformed by the power of Christ. And he transforms it into wine. Now, again, wine is a symbol of joy. Wine is a symbol of wrath. But wine is also in the Bible. And especially Jesus tells us that wine is a symbol of blood, of cleansing. Later, Jesus will say, as he meets with his disciples prior to his death, he will take the bread and he said, this is my body given for you. And he will take that cup of wine and he says, this cup of wine is my blood shed for the remission, for the forgiveness of your sins. Because it's only blood that can wash away sin. After Jesus, and we will look at that miracle later in this series, but in John 6, after Jesus 
feeds the 5,000 with five loaves and two fishes and feeds 5,000 people and has an enormous amount left over. The people want to follow him, but they want more miracles. And he, he rebukes them because they're more interested in filling their bellies than they are in having their sins washed away. So he says to them, in John chapter 6, he says, I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he'll live forever. And the bread that I will give him for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Well, we symbolically drink his blood when we take the Lord's table and eat his flesh. Some would say, no, it's magically transformed into the body and blood of Christ, but that's not what Jesus is saying because he'd already told us earlier how we really eat and drink Jesus. He said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never hunger. We eat by coming. And whoever believes in me will never thirst. We drink by believing. And the truth is, when we initially eat Jesus' flesh by coming to him and drink his blood by believing in him, he brings satisfaction to our soul. And as we live our lives in this world, as we keep looking to Christ and coming to Christ and believing in Christ, we live without spiritual hunger. Those at this wedding feast in Cana are now drinking wine from these jars of ritual purification. They don't understand the significance. I imagine that later the disciples, at least these five and the others that they told, would begin to put together the big story of Christ and see the irony that it's not powerless waters for ritual purification that they're drinking that can do nothing, but they're drinking that which eventually becomes to symbolize the blood of Jesus Christ that is shed for sins because it's only the blood of Christ that can truly cleanse us. John put it this way, the same John in one of his shorter epistles. He says, if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ 
constantly cleanses us from all our sins. So if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us. How can he cleanse us? I, I've sinned. I deserve to die. He can cleanse us because there is blood that was shed that paid the debt that I owe. And it's through that blood I am forgiven. Paul put it this way. It's in Christ. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins. Redemption through his blood. Peter put it this way. Knowing that you were ransomed, from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And then John, when he writes his last book, Revelation, he says this book is from Jesus Christ the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. You know, years ago, many of the liberal churches got sick of all of this stuff about blood. They didn't want songs in their in their uh, hymnal that talked about blood. You know, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. They, they didn't want it, and so they, they made hymn books that did not talk about blood. They made Bible translations that instead of using the word blood, they would simply talk about death. And certainly it is the death of Christ. But the Bible wants us to know that it's the blood of Christ that was shed for our sins that cleanses us from our sin. And the joy that the Messiah brings, the joy represented by gallons and gallons of excellent wine, that joy of the kingdom can never be experienced unless you have drank his blood and been washed in his blood. In both the joy and the cleansing that Jesus Christ offers, we see his glory. We see the glory of his work that I, that I call superior and sufficient. When he creates joy, when he brings cleansing, it is always the best. The master of the ceremonies, he takes it and he tastes it. And he's alarmed that the bridegroom has not followed, followed the tradition, sort of the protocol, maybe the dishonest one of letting people drink good wine and then later give them the bad wine. Now, I don't know why that would work, because whenever I taste bad wine, I know it's bad wine. Uh, but apparently, it did work in the first century. So they would serve the good stuff first, and after they drank that a little bit, maybe got a little happy, 
They'd bring out the bad stuff. But the master says, this is the best. Of course it is. He didn't know who the trying to think of the word for a winemaker. I'll just say winemaker. Uh, Oinolog? No, that's not a winemaker. Vintner? Jesus made this wine. Isaiah said he was going to do it. I don't think this is the big celebration at this point. This is just the inauguration. This is just the beginning letting us know that this Messiah has the power to create the means for joy. He can do that. And what he does, it's the best. You know, I was thinking back as I was preparing this of, of moments in my life with, which I thought were exhilarating, you know, like marriage, getting married. I think even the honeymoon was better than the ceremony, though. Joy, absolute joy. Having your first child, and your second, and your third, and your fourth, and your fifth. I mean, these are moments of great joy. Or playing softball and hitting the ball so far that you could just walk around the bases. Man, that feels good. Think of all those moments of great joy that you've had. And John would say, they don't compare to the joy that Jesus creates. It's always greater. It's always better. But it's not only superior, it's sufficient. I mean, there's 26 ounces uh, Six-ounce glasses for, for 200 people. There's more than enough. And Jesus wants us to know that. That when we come to him, he as our good shepherd will always provide more than enough for us. The joy is more than enough. The cleansing is more than enough. Jesus Christ is always better. I love the way Peter talked about this joy. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Now, I don't know what that is. I just know it's good and it's better than anything else. That in Jesus Christ, there is a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Like the golden temple at Amritsar, religion, religious Christianity, or religious anything may get your feet wet and make you feel a little bit better about yourself. But it will always leave you without cleansing, and without satisfaction. The joy that he creates will never de be depleted. The joy of the kingdom will never run out. When he 
cleans you. As he said to his disciples, now you are truly clean. Or as Jesus said, if we come to him, we'll never hunger. If we drink his blood, we will never thirst. I love the song, the great hymn, There is a fountain filled with blood. I love the image. There's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. He's telling us, as the Bible tells us, there is sufficient cleansing. There is sufficient joy. But John's question is, do you see the glory of this one called Jesus? I've written this. I'm telling you this story about Jesus turning water into wine that you might believe that he is the Messiah and that believing you might have life through his name. Come, John would say. Come and be satisfied. Let's pray together, shall we? And if there has never been a clear, precise point in your life, when you know that you repented of your sin, when you understood that Jesus is God in flesh who died for you and rose again, if you have never come to that place in your life where you have repented and received him, as we read earlier, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the sons of God. You can do that right now, right where you sit, in the quietness of your heart between you and God. Right now you can pray something like this. Just simply say, Father, I know that I'm a sinner. I know I deserve to be judged. And I know that I cannot save myself. But I believe Jesus is your son. I believe he died for my sins. And I believe he rose again. And right now, I surrender to him. By faith, I come to him, I ask for cleansing, I ask for joy. Come into my life, Lord Jesus. If you pray that prayer and mean it, then right where you sit, God will give you immediate cleansing and begin to give you the wonderful joy that Christ wants to bring in your life. And if you did pray that prayer, I would like to know that. I would like to pray for you. We would like to encourage you to learn more about Jesus and follow Jesus fully. And I wonder, is there anyone this morning, just between you, me, and God, if you would say, yes, today I surrendered to Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Pray for me. Could I do that? Just quietly slip your hand up. 
Yes, today I did that. I did that. Father, thank you for the wonderful gift of life through Jesus Christ that by believing in him, we might have life through his name. Help us that know him to rejoice in that every day. And help us this week to pray for, to go after our friends, our neighbors, our loved ones, so that they can hear about Jesus and know what it is to have life through his name. Use us for your glory. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.